0: Teaching the gospel to someone can be tricky. This year, uh, as I've gone every year out of the country to do mission work, one of the things I do before I go is I devise a plan of how I'm going to study with somebody. Because one of the things that has uh, occurred to me, and maybe because I've seen it among some of my own brethren, is is that there can be... There can be the danger of someone, particularly when, you know, where I live or where I travel to is usually very Catholic. It can be very dangerous that when you're teaching someone that essentially what you're what you're convincing them is is to trade is to trade one one set of religious rules and doctrines and rituals for, for another one. Where they, they, they have been convinced to, to convert to a different religion. They've, they've been convinced to just trade in one for the other one because, because that's what the Bible teaches. Now, the reason that that can be very dangerous is because when we think about the command to make disciples, refer to it in the class, Matthew 28 19. Go for it, make disciples. Well, what is a disciple really? Um, a disciple is someone who follows Jesus and no other. They follow Him. It isn't somebody who, who holds the name Christian. It isn't somebody who shows up at church. Uh, it isn't somebody who says the right things. It isn't somebody who necessarily teaches the right things. Uh, it's not even necessarily someone that, that lives a, a, the right way. It's someone who first and foremost understands some very basic things. And I kind of revamped the way that I was approaching people. And, and I actually had had this particular study with some people who, as I studied with them, the look on their face was, was like they were having light bulb moments. Because I was just sharing with them some things that they actually would tell me. They would say, no one's ever told me this before, thank you. Now, in particular, it isn't just a matter of, and I'll I'll say this as just as a caveat, the uh, the back to the Bible series that that I've used and that is good. I, I I think that sometimes I might start somewhere a little earlier or cover some things earlier, uh, which is which is what this lesson is about. I changed my whole strategy because. I really wasn't concerned with getting someone in the water. I was concerned with someone understanding who Jesus was and deciding to follow Him. Because I understood, and I think that you agree with me, if somebody truly understands who Jesus is, they understand what He's done, and they understand what it has to do with them. And they choose to respond appropriately appropriately to that. Then when we open the Bible, they'll just submit to it. But the problem we have sometimes is we end up debating things and convincing someone to trade trade out a particular uh, ritual for another ritual when really they thought that being religious and following rituals and going to church on Sunday meant that they were saved. Instead of understanding that only by faith in Jesus and His power to save me and His His ability to make me righteous in Him is the way to save me. And my full submission to Him in faithfulness is the key. Because unless that comes first, then whatever comes after that is is possibly just self-righteousness. Oh, I want to be a better religious person and follow more accurately some more religious things... Rather than I fully want to submit to Jesus and just whatever He has commanded, whatever He expects of me, I want to respond to Him and submit to Him. And, uh, and so, I want us to look at really those three things. I want to look at those three three things that I think are vital for us to understand. And this is, this is I believe, something that is very important for us as individuals. For us to ask ourselves and for us to work through ourselves. And also for it to be part of, like I said earlier, we don't it's not it's not exactly genuine to have a script. It's good to have a plan and know what you want to do. But when you have a plan with someone, to have in mind a presentation of these three things. Number one, who Jesus is, which is really his nature. Number two what he has done, or his work, and number three, what that has to do with me? Or you might think of think of that as his calling. What is the calling of you? What's his nature? What's his work? And what is his calling for a man? What's his expectation? What is the appropriate reaction? And I want to go through those three things. First, let's dive in. I have twice as many pages of notes than I do on a normal lesson, and so let's. Uh, Let's try to get out of here by 1230. Um, number one, his nature. John 1, starting in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made for him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And you go to really what I think is the bookend. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now this is so full of so much of his nature uh he is with God, He is God, He's before creation, He is the creator. He's a man. He's a perfect man. And even an accurate way of think of it, he is he is a God man in the sense that he came as a man and he was perfect. He was face to face with us, but he's the only perfect man. You go to John 12, 46 and following. He says, I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. Not I have come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge in the last day. And so, you find a couple of things there in this passage. Number one, he's the Savior. And number two, he's the judge. Now, he says, I didn't come to judge, but he says, my words are the things that judge. And so he has both the authority from God as a Savior and as Judge. Referred to a minute ago, a few minutes ago, Matthew 16, 16. The great confession of you are the Lord Christ, the Son of the living God. Who is he? He is the Son of God. He is, without getting into a, a look into the Godhead or the Trinity or that kind of the relationship between them, uh, he is quite simply the Son of God. He is deity. He is eternal past and eternal future. I did a, uh, did a whole paper about this years ago. Matthew twenty eight eighteen. Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Uh, and uh, what I argued for in this paper is that you cannot understand the Bible. You cannot understand the New Testament. You cannot properly, I, I, I said it this way, the proper filter or proper perspective for understanding the New Testament is, number one, you have to understand Jesus has all authority. When you understand that, that He is sovereign, then everything else really falls into place. When you understand the authority structure, God the Father sent God the Son. He sends the Holy Spirit that inspires men. And whatever they said, whatever they wrote, by the authority of Jesus, and He has all authority. We need to understand that about His nature. Colossians 1.18, we have more important, uh, you might say, descriptive terms about Jesus. Colossians 1.18, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent or have the preeminence. And so, He is the head of the church, is His body, And he's first. He is first. And so really quickly, really quickly, his nature. His nature is that he he was with God. He is God. He was before creation existed. He is the creator. He is the perfect man. He's the savior. He's the judge. He's the son of God. He has all authority. He's the head of the church. He's first. He's preeminent. Now you could go into more and more and more about what the nature of Jesus, but but that's a pretty good start. Who is Jesus? He he is he is this. And another way of thinking of it is, and this is really this. What's the whole point of this? What's the whole point of understanding who Jesus is? The whole point is to understand his worthiness for us to fall down before him. He is worthy to be praised. He is worthy to be followed. He is worthy to wear His name. He is sovereign. He is deity. He is a creator. And the only appropriate response for a person is to fall down on their face before Him. Now, unless we start right there, as, even as people who are Christians, unless we have that firmly in our mind as we go throughout our daily life, then we may be missing something about why we're doing what we're doing. We we have to understand the worthiness the worthiness of Jesus. Number 2, after his nature, then we get into his work. Now, I understand that his work is tied together with his, his nature. I I, under, I understand that. But let's just unfold this with a few passages. The first part of his work is that he's he's our sacrifice. I love the way that you, you, you have really an introduction in John chapter 1, but then you kind of have a second introduction. In John 1, you go down to verse 29 where you have John who's immersing, and he sees Jesus coming he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's the way that he, he announced it, that Jesus was coming when he saw Him. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's our sacrifice. In John 10 verse 11, he says, I'm the good sheep. The good sheep lays down his life for the sheep. You, you, you go down a little bit further in John 10, and he says, there's a lot in John, there's a lot in John that helps us understand his nature and his work. But John 10.10 10 is what? The abundant life passage. He came to, to give us an abundant life. Verse 11, he says, he lays down his life, and that's, his, that's his, his solution for giving us the abundant life is that he gives himself. And then he says, he says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my, on my own. No one takes it from me. I, it's my choice to lay it down. You go to verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. Now they're one in mind. They're one in spirit. Uh, they're one in, in will. you look to get John 17 where he's praying to the Father... And This is an important an important concept about the relationship between the Father and the Son. Without getting too much into that, but this is really an important understanding about Him being the sacrifice and Him choosing to do that is to understand that you know you have uh, I think it was a lecture one time that it was the question is is does the New Testament teach. What what would what it call it? Uh, something like uh, cosmic child abuse—the idea of the father putting to death the son. Uh, m- maybe you could parallel that to to Abraham and Isaac, and the asking of Abraham to kill his son Isaac. And and the thing is, is that we need we have to be very careful when we begin to think of penal substitutionary atonement. I'll get to that in a minute. As as some sort of as some sort of an action that's outside of the character of God. And this is this is the I believe the appropriate way for us to understand it is this. Is that when when Jesus comes and he's doing the will of the Father to die, that it isn't that it isn't that God the Father somehow coerced the Son, as as if that's the type of relationship that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have with one another. The the Father and the Son, the Spirit, they enjoy, their relationship that they enjoy together is is Love in its perfect state. And they exist, they exist to be glorified. That's a, whole, that's a whole different lesson, but God exists to be glorified in us so that we can enjoy the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Uh, we been studying in Ephesians chapter 1, three times in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, you have the phrase, something to the, the essence of, um, to the praise of His glory, of His glorious grace. This, this understanding that we have, to, we have to glorify God. In other words, we have to understand who God is, who the Son is, what they've done. We have to glorify the, Him in order for us to be able to enjoy His benefits. Ephesians 1.3, only in Jesus do we have all of the spiritual blessings. And so, and so we have this understanding that, that only by glorifying God and His Son in submission do we have access to spiritual blessings in Christ. And so God, who is infinitely glorified, He is I've been studying recently the ontological argument for the existence of God, the, the idea of the, uh, a maximally great being, which I don't really like the ontological ar- argument of God because I'm, I don't think I'm smart enough for it. But uh, it's this idea that God's a maximally great being and you can't imagine anything greater than Him. And He is maximally glorified. Can we glorify God any more than He's already glorified? You might say, well, no, it's impossible. He's maximally glorified. He's infinitely glorified. Okay. Well, are there decisions in your daily life that you could choose or purpose to glorify God in that you didn't before? Sure, there are, which means even in our personal, even poor, you know, poor, pitiful little me, I can choose to add to the glory of the infinitely glorified God. And in doing so, in doing so, I have access to the only means by which I enter into His blessings. Uh, on, the, on the grand scale, only by being in Christ. Galatians 3.27, We are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus for His means. We are baptized into Christ. I put on Christ. We put on Christ. We're baptized into Christ. We enter into, we'll get to that in a minute, we enter into the work of Christ. And in so doing, we enter into the eternal blessings of Christ. But there are so many blessings this side of eternity that are a part of the abundant life, that if in our small, the, the, uh, the micro decisions that we make, if we would say, I'm going to purpose this to the glory of God, I'm going to purpose that to the glory of God, I'm going to purpose that to the glory of God, in all those areas of life, they, God brings, in essence, God brings the increase of the abundant life in all of those areas because we've chosen, we've chosen to glorify Him in those areas. And so understanding the nature of God, understanding who He is, helps us helps us to properly respond to Him in glorifying Him. Because His recipe for blessing us is always through glorifying Him. It's not self-serving to Him. You, know, you look at Acts 17 where He says, God doesn't need anything from us. But when we glorify Him and we give Him worship, and we give Him a submissive life, that's, that's how we share in Him. You Look at uh, uh, 2 Peter 1, the first four verses. Before the Christian graces, you have have this statement about participating or partaking of the divine nature. It's this idea that we can have a union with God. The more that we're united with God, the more that we share with who God is. The only way that we can join in union with Him is by glorifying Him. Glorifying Him is the only way to draw close to Him. And, and our, our participation in the abundant life and our participation in the blessings of Christ are directly proportional to how much of our life we're willing to glorify God in. You don't have a very abundant life. How much of your life are you purposing into the glory of God? Now, I digress from that. I digress from that. When we're looking at the idea of His sacrifice, the best, best known passage, John 3.16, For God's love of the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Gave Him. And so, when we were thinking of And I'm sorry, I I went too far. I want to just clarify this. That it isn't the Father coercing the Son. It's that Jesus didn't have any, any choice. It's that the choice of the Father and His will is identical to the choice of the Son and His will. The will of the Son is the will of the Father. The Father didn't have to say, I need you to do something, and I'm going to have to force you to do it. The will of the Son was, my will is identical to your will, which is for me to sacrifice myself. I give my life of my own will, and no one takes it from me. So Jesus isn't coerced. Even though in the garden when He prays, take this cup from me, if there's any other way. In His flesh, He understood the difficulty that would come, and He didn't have to go through and face that. But His will was what? Not my will, but Yours. Not my fleshly will. Because you go back to chapter 17, He says, he says what? My purpose is to glorify You by accomplishing Your will. And so he shared the will of God. God did not compel him to. In the institution of Lord's Supper, Matthew 26, 27, 28, says, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it uh, to them, saying, Drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Philippians two, you know this. I don't have enough time to go through all these passages. Philippians two, five through eleven. This might be you, which is also in Christ Jesus being in the form of God and not consider it robbery or something to be grasped to be equal to God, but He emptied Himself, came as a man, died on the cross. And God glorified Him, or He glorified God and He was elevated. Or he was given the name which is above every name so that everyone sh- who, who understands who He is appropriately responds in bowing down to Him and proclaiming who He is and confessing who He is because they understand that He came as our sacrifice. First 1 John 2 and verse 2, John says He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the atonement. He is the means by which the wrath of God is appeased. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21. Looked at this earlier. In Christ He is a new creation. There again you have the the blessings of God. Only by glorifying Jesus and joining in union with Him does someone become a new creation. Does someone enjoy that blessing? So the old has passed away, behold, the, the, the new has come. And this is from God through, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting the trespasses against them and trusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors of Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God, for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And so, you have a parallel passage to that, talking about how He is, he is our reconciliation, He's the means of reconciliation. You could add into this that He is our mediator. In Romans 5, 6-11, through 11, you have a parallel passage to that. And So He is our propitiation or our atonement or our, um, He's our mediator, which you see our, His mediator is what? It's, it's, it's His identity and it's His work, Right? 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20, when saying, look, if, if the resurrection didn't happen, then why are we even here? We're the most to be pitied, Paul says. But in verse 20 he says, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. I referenced Acts 17 a little earlier, where at the end of that, lesson in Athens Paul says in 30 and 31 he says the times of ignorance God is overlooked but now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead and so a couple things you have as far as the work of Jesus is that his part of his work is the resurrection He, he is the first fruits of the resurrection that that was that's the work that makes makes all the other work worthwhile. You know, you go to the end of that, you go to the end of that chapter, chapter 1 Corinthians 15, after 57 verses about the resurrection, he says, Therefore, be steadfast and movable, always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. We do what we do, all the work that we do, all the submission we, we give, is all because the resurrection is a reality, that Jesus has accomplished that work. But not only that, but He will judge the world in righteous judgment. And the evidence of that is His resurrection. And so what is the work? His work, and you may add to this, this is not exhaustive. His work is that He is the sacrifice. He is our propitiation or our atonement. He is the means of reconciliation or He is our mediator. His work is the resurrection. You could say His work is a lot more than that, but His work culminates in the resurrection. After his sacrifice. And his work is that he will be the judge. Now what does that have to do with us? You see, what is the appropriate response to understanding that he was with God and was God and is the creator? and has all authority. That he was the perfect man. What is the appropriate response that we understand that he was the sacrifice but has been resurrected? And that he is our means of being reconciled to God. What does it have to do with me that he has all authority? What does this all have to do with me? Well, the appropriate response to this is what it means to be a disciple. Because we're asking the question from the very beginning, am I really a disciple? Am I am I when I study with someone, am I really converting them to Jesus so they follow him first? Because I know if they follow him first, I have confident that anywhere that I open the Bible, they will just submit to it because they just, they just want to be pleasing to Jesus. They understand, they understand the secret recipe is, I want to glorify God in my life because that's the only way to be in union with Him through Christ. So, as far as the call, as you may think of it as another way, but what does is, what is Jesus call for us? In all that He has done, what does He call us to do? Well, when you think of His work and the work that He's done... He has done it with the intention of us following in His steps. There's a couple of passages, and there's maybe more than this, but a couple of passages in in Hebrews. Hebrews uh, 2 and verse 10, uh, the Hebrew writer says, "...for it was fitting that He, for whom by all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder or the captain..." There are other translations of that word. "...the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering." In Hebrews uh, 12, 1 and 2, and we find that following the uh, the faithful of Hebrews 11, he says looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. And, and the word that it, this translate here founder is this is this kind of a, a special word. This word archegos. Um, you you have this word the, this, the root word really arche is is the word for beginning or first. He's the first this is the one who is the first. And this is, I believe, the. if you're looking in the New Testament, you're looking for the first century term that you would translate as hero. This is everything that we think of as a hero. The word archegos can be translated as trailblazer. If you think of the sense of someone going somewhere with the intention of others following in their steps. I believe it was William Barclay that that, that uh, described it this way. He says, If there is a, a ship full of, of people and the waves are crashing them into the rocks, but there's one person who throws, who throws a, uh, well, who grabs a rope and jumps out and swims through the rocks and goes to the land and holds the line so that everybody can grab a hold of that line and come in. That's what this word means. That Jesus has done a work with the full intention of everyone that comes behind Him or sees what He's done, the full intention is for them to follow in His steps of His work. And so we understand the example that Jesus made. Uh, it's, it's specifically said in 1 Peter 2.21 that we follow in His steps. That We understand that the work that Jesus done, has done, an appropriate response is to follow in the work that He has done. He has done it for us to follow Him. Matthew 16:24 and following, he says, "If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me." Acts 17:30, as I mentioned a minute ago, he calls all men everywhere to repent. And so what does he call? First, he calls for repentance or self-denial, the denial of self-will in the turning to the will of God. You know, you have that fiery serpent in the wilderness and you have that in John 3 where He says, if the Son of Man is lifted up, all men will turn to Him or come to Him. It's this idea that Jesus is lifted up and the appropriate response to Jesus being lifted up is no longer to be facing the direction you want to face, but it's to turn and face Him, to turn to God. That's what repentance is, to turn from the direction I want to go and turn to the direction He wants to go. That's what discipleship is. When you think of the, the Great Commission... In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the command that Jesus gives. It's so mind-boggling to me that this is somehow disputed or debated or minimalized in some way that He commanded us to be baptized by His authority, is essentially what He's saying. By the authority of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Baptizing, making the disciples, baptizing them. Because what? In, in discipling them, you are asking them to identify or to be united with what I've done. Paul describes that in Romans 6 when he says, I don't know if I want to read all this because I don't have enough time. But he, he says, do you not know that all of us who were baptized uh, into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we be united with Him in His death like He is, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Of course, I have to read this because I've started using the English Standard Version, but I can't quote it. Save saved my life. Uh, I grew up quoting the King James, or the New King James and the King James. But what's, what's important is this. From the Great Commission we have, discipling is described as two things, baptizing them and teaching them. And so when we, when we take Romans 6, which talks about our, our unity with His work, of His death, burial, and resurrection, and some have said that that's, that's the means by which we identify with the work of Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection. And then Jesus' call is... When we are are choosing to be His disciple, we are united with His death and His self-denial and repentance, burial and resurrection, but also in His teachings. Teaching them to observe everything I've commanded. And so the appropriate response to Jesus, His call is for us to be united both in His works and to be united in His words. To have a union or for for His his, uh, life work and His life words to permeate us totally. In John 6, 66 and following, it says, John records this, After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. That's after He had fed the, the thousands. And Jesus says, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that You are the Holy One of God. And so what is, what is the appropriate response? Or what is it that He wants us to follow Him into? He wants us to follow in Him into eternal life. In John 12.50, it's actually said that His command is eternal life. Jesus, uh, Jesus expects us in following Him, not only to follow Him in self-denial repentance, following Him in His works and His words, but to follow Him into eternal life. God expects everyone to become a Christian because Jesus is worthy to be followed and God does not want anyone to perish but all to come to repentance. God's intention is for everyone to be saved. The appropriate response is to to follow him into eternal life. And so let me go through these just one more time. We think of his nature. He's the Son of God. He is with God. He is God. He's before creation. He's the creator. He's the perfect man. He's the Savior. He's the judge of the world. He has all authority. He is the head of the church and he's first. What has he done? He's our sacrifice. He's the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He's our propitiation, our atonement. He's our means of reconciliation. He's our mediator. He's accomplished resurrection through which we can enter into for eternal life. His work is that he will judge the world. But what is his call? What does that have to do with me? What's the appropriate response to that? Is to follow in his steps, in self-denial and repentance, to be united with his works and his words. In order to embrace eternal life. You know, in studying with someone, I want, I want to tell them, I want to say, look, Jesus is worth giving up everything for. If you have any doubts about giving up everything for Jesus, it's because you don't know who he is, or it's because you're in love with something else. But I go to this passage. I go to this mindset of Paul in Philippians 3. Philippians 3 starting in verse 7. Look at what Paul says. He says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, as garbage, as trash, They're nothing, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, may suffer His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. When you ask the question, well, what did Paul think about Jesus? Well, Paul thought this. If there is anything in my life getting in my way of having and embracing Jesus... It's got to go. I've got to get that out of my life. He says a similar type of thing. He sums it up in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. In other words, he's responded appropriately to who Christ is in self-denial and repentance. I've been crucified with Christ. I've entered into the work of Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet, yet it's it's not me who's alive now. It's Christ who lives in me. The life I know live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I understand who He is. I understand what He's done. And the appropriate response is this, that by any means, I may embrace eternal life. And I want to leave you just with a passage that, that is a challenge, a challenge for me. It should be a challenge for us asking ourselves the questions: am I really thinking right about Jesus? Colossians 3, starting in verse 1. Paul says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now here's the key. Verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. And that really is what it comes down to, is being able to ask myself, is Jesus, is, is He my life? There are a lot of people who say that there are a lot of things that are their life. You hear a lot with sports and things like that. Ball is my life, or such and such is my life. Are we so totally consumed with Jesus, that's, that's what we can say. Every day, what, what really... What permeates out of my pores into the people around? What overflows my cup into people? I'll tell you what your life is. Is Jesus your life? Do you understand who He is and what He's done? Have you responded appropriately? We're going to have a song of encouragement. If you haven't done that yet, you can do it. If you want to study about it more, we can study about it. Jesus' intention is for you to understand who He is, what He's done for you, so that you can join him and his father and the spirit in eternity and share a perfect love with them. But well, that happens today by choosing to glorify him. If there's a need, come as we stand and sing a song of encouragement. Swiftly
1: work early, daily Swiftly the hours are changing. To years. How are we using God's brethren moments? Shall we reap glory? Shall we reap tears? Into our hands the gospel is given, into our hands it's given the life. God's precious mercy guiding the airing back to the right. Millions are groping without the gospel. Quickly they'll reach eternity's night. Shall we survive a true law. back to the right souls that are precious souls that are dying while we rejoice our sins are forgiven did he not also die for these lost ones then let us point the Way unto Him into our hands, all gospel is given into our hands, it's given the might. Haste, let us carry God's precious message. God, in the end back to the rite.
2: If you would, let's turn to our closing song. be number 397. Gary, I want to thank you once again. Yeah, sure.
3: I've got to mention that this is Second Sunday. Those that are visiting with us, we have a fellowship down in the back that's been prepared and you'd like to stay in the
2: Again, Carrie, I want to thank you very much for your lesson today um, and all the blessings from your family. Y'all, y'all are certainly a great blessing to Panama Street and everyone that you all come in contact with. Thank you for the message. Again, as uh, Brother Sheldon mentioned, we do have a luncheon today, and um, all of our visitors you are certainly our honored guests. Uh, please stick around so we can get to know you better. I'd love for you to stay and uh, eat lunch with us. Uh, just remember we do have services this evening. Uh, We're going to have the 5 o'clock and the 5.30, uh, both the uh, training and the memory work, and then have our services at 6. Number 397, we'll sing the first and second verse, and then be led in our closing prayer.
1: We read of a place that's called heaven, it's made for the pure and the free, these truths in God's word he hath given, how beautiful heaven must be, how beautiful heaven must be, sweet home for the happy and free, say hey. For the weary How beautiful heaven must be In heaven no drooping nor pining No wishing for elsewhere to be God's light is forever there shining How beautiful heaven must be How beautiful heaven must be Happy and free, fair haven of rest for the we.
3: Christ Jesus, who died for our sins, who did have the same will as you, who always has, as all are one, we pray that we may uh, learn to be one as all are one, and be able to glorify you in our lives. Father, thank you for uh, caring His willingness to uh, present your word to us. We're thankful, Father, for, um, for your word.